This episode of I'm Horrified is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com horrified to get your free audiobook and start listening. It's that easy. Right now, I'm listening to Going Clear by Lawrence Wright, which pairs perfectly with our Scientology segment in episode 6. And I'm listening to The Rogue Not Taken by Sarah McLean, a sizzling romance novel for those who enjoyed episode 49. So head to audibletrial.com horrified to start your free trial now. Happy listening! Are you fucking kidding me? Hello, everyone. Hi, listeners. Welcome to another episode of I'm Horrified. This is episode, like, what? 50, 54? 55? 54? Welcome to our 54th round in the Thunderdome. Oh, wow. And um, it's not ending anytime soon, folks. No, no, no. Thank God we've got just enough free time to keep this nightmare rolling. Oh, man. I'm going to say something that shouldn't be a surprise to any of our listeners, because it's pretty clear who I am at this point. Mm-hmm. But if I was ever in a Thunderdome scenario, like if someone was like, fight for your life. Right. Like, here's a weapon. This other person has a weapon. Absolutely, you must fight to live. Right. I would I would roll over. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do it. You would invite death. I would. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. And then I think to myself, like, but what if it was, like, fight for a loved one? Like, if you have to fight so they'll live. I'm still like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You like to think it. that that would encourage you and you'd, like, pick up a stick and yeah. go for it. But I'd be like, I mean, they knew who I was, too, <laughs> so they shouldn't be surprised that I'm just the same weak person I was yeah. before this Im- impetus. scenario. <laughs> um, no, good point. Glad we started there. Sam, uh, <laughs> what are we talking about this week? Uh, today I'm going to talk about the Boeing 737 MAX 8. And I'm going to talk about Woodstock 1999. Two bad things. Two bad things. We should have probably named this podcast Two Bad Things. That's good. I like that. That actually makes more sense than I'm horrified, because a lot of people are like, is this a horror movie podcast? It's not. Um, Although I hate horror movies, so. Yeah, so. They they horrify me. Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) I don't care. Listen to our content. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, But Sam, I am interested. I really actually don't know much. I know that this is a hot topic issue. It is. But I've had a busy month at work, so I haven't been reading the quote-unquote news. No, absolutely not. Um, So bring me up to speed. Well, I actually only know this story because of our dear friend and friend of the podcast, Becky Thurgood. Mm -hmm. She um, loves the news. Loves the news. Loves all things transportation. Yes, that's true. That's true of her. She's really... Trains, planes, automobiles. Tom Hanks. She's interested in those things. Right. So, um, she told me kind of the basics of this, and then I was like, fuck. So I started researching it, and here we are today. So thank you, Becky. All right, and let's also, do it. And also, no thank you, Becky. <laughs> so the Boeing 737 MAX 8 uh, is a new series of aircraft designed and produced by Boeing Commercial Airplanes, and it's their fourth generation of Boeing 737. Oh, I didn't know Boeing was like a corporation. I just thought that was like what you called certain types of planes. No, it's like the the manufacturer of the plane. Okay. Is Boeing. Cool. So if you're in a Boeing, it was made by Boeing. God, we learn so much on this podcast. We really do. We really do. For this podcast, I was going to try to learn um, how planes work, and I didn't. No, that's fine. (laughs) We didn't learn that. So um, these babies first debuted, this model of 737, debuted in May of 2017. The first one ever came out, and then they've been slowly rolling out since then. 
And uh, in the last six months, they have been involved in two catastrophic plane crashes. Oh, God. I'm horrified. Yeah, so before we get it all the way into this, I just want to talk a little bit about planes and why they are so spooky. Um, I think a lot of people are afraid of f- flying. Um, about 25% of the population has said has that a fear they of are flying. afraid of flying. And I think that's because it really combines a lot of big fears. Like, if you're claustrophobic, that's coming into play because you can't escape a small space. Right. If you're afraid of things that are out of your control, like once you get on a plane, you really can't do anything. That's scary. If you're afraid of the unknown, like how the fuck do planes work? What if you're just afraid of hurting, hurtling yourself into the sky like the bird you never were? Yeah, a, a full Icarus moment. Right. Yeah, that's a popular fear as well. So I think it's just like a cacophony of a lot of bad stuff. Um, and if you are a person who is super afraid of flying, I get it. Um, and this is a bad episode for you. Sorry. But if we can get through this together, I'm going to talk to you at the end about how to be less scared. Yeah. I have extremely severe flight anxiety. Yes. Um, so if I can do it, you don't have to. Yeah. (laughs) That's also true. Yep. I'll do it for all of you. Yeah. You could skip this episode, but I'm going to try to make it. Hey, I'm about to talk about Limp Biscuit in a little while. Come on. I made my segment of the episode. Yes. You could skip 30 minutes in. Join, join us up in a couple minutes when I start (laughs) yappity yapping. Um, alrighty. So let's talk about these two horrific plane crashes. Oh god, there were two? I feel like after the first one, they'd be like, nope, we're not going to make any more of these. (laughs) Well, okay. Yeah. So the first was Lion Air Flight 610, uh, which was a scheduled domestic flight operated by the Indonesian airline Lion Air. I've never uh, heard of it. <laughs> and it was very popular in Indonesia. Okay, that's why. <laughs> and it was going from um, the airport in Jakarta to the airport in Pangalpiang in October of 2018. So very recently. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Flight 610 had about 189 people aboard. 181 were passengers and those were 178 adults, one child, and two infants, as well as six cabin crew and two pilots. I'm saying all because I'm assuming that everyone died. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I'm just... How often do you survive a plane crash, really? Yeah, especially when the word crash is in there. Like, a plane incident, I think you're fine. A plane wonky landing, maybe, (laughs) but a crash... It's like, I don't... You don't want to make it. Like, it's like you don't want to... It's like a car crash could be a small thing or a big thing. But a plane crash, it's kind of like, all right, we're done. Yeah. Yeah. So they took off at 6.20 a.m. And within 30 seconds, the control column uh, in the, like, that the pilots are holding started shaking, which indicated that the plane was in danger of stalling and could crash. That's right. Planes can stall. Fuck. Really didn't know that. Just like a car or, I don't know, a computer. A plane can stall in the air. (laughs) That's pretty fun. That's horrible. Yeah. So, by two minutes into the flight, the pilots were radioing air traffic control for help because they were saying that all of their critical readers were coming out with different readings between the pilot and the co-pilot, so they were like, clearly something's fucked up. Jesus Christ. Because these should be showing the same Imagine that moment when you're like, oh, you know, I'm getting this error on this plane I'm trying to fucking fly. Yeah. It's, uh, bad. So because their readings aren't accurate, they can't correct altitude or airspeed because they're like, we don't even know what the fuck is going on. 
and then the plane dipped 700 feet, which indicated to the cabin crew and the passengers that something was very wrong. Like, if the plane's just kind of shaky, it's like, the plane's shaky, it's turbulence. But if it dips 700 feet, that's really noticeable. Oh, God. Oh, God, I feel like I'm going to vomit. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> so outside of the plane, um, one of the plane's sensors was falsely indicating that the plane's nose was pointed too high. And if a plane's nose is pointed too high, then the aircraft can stall. So this... Uh, triggered I'm system. still I'm still trying to get over that fact that you just that, that they can just stall. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we shouldn't be allowed to make planes if they do that. Do you know what I'm saying? I know, I know. Like a car, you can just kind of pull to the side. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. Interrupting <laughs> you could just you. roll to a stop. Do you know? <laughs> Put on your emergencies. You can't do that in the air. Can't. So, um, this um sensor that was falsely indicating that the plane's nose was too high triggered a system called the MCAS, which I'm going to talk more about later. And this pushed the stabilizers forward and forced the plane's nose down. But really, the plane's nose was not too high, so they were basically in a nosedive five (gasps) minutes in. Jesus Christ. And the pilots are like, what the fuck is happening? So they're trying to counteract this by pulling up and, like, forcing the plane's nose way far up again. And then the sensors would freak out and force the plane's nose down again. So they're basically seesawing through the air multiple times (sighs) five minutes in. Uh, and finally, at 12 minutes into the flight, the plane plunged 5,000 feet at 540 miles per hour straight into the Java Sea, and all 189 people on board were killed. Oh my god, that's horrible. Yeah, it's just a full nightmare, and, like, the fear that these people must have been experiencing. Like, I, I, I cannot imagine. I literally, it's awful. So it's a full nightmare scenario, and it's actually the worst crash in the history of Boeing and in the history of Lion Air. Wow. So, two, two records there. Something that I won't research. Yeah, don't do that. Because immediately my brain was like, well, what's the worst of this? And it's like, Allie, you don't need to know that. <laughs> no, no. You and your brain don't need to know. We're good. We're good. Uh, but, you know, one plane has a nightmare scenario. That is awful, but it's a freak thing, right? Like, this one right. sensor was fucked up. Oh, my God. A nightmare. It will not happen again. Right. That brings us to Ethiopia Airlines Flight 302. Oh, right. The second one you talked about. Yeah. So, Ethiopia Airlines Flight 302 was a scheduled international flight, uh, which was going from Ethiopia to Kenya on March 10th of 2019. So, Are you fucking kidding me? That was, like, yeah, a week ago. Yes. We're bringing you very hot topics. Oh, Jesus Christ. I really haven't been watching. I have not been reading the news. That's yeah. horrible. Okay, tell me about it fast. Okay. <laughs> the aircraft takes off at 8.38 a.m. with 149 passengers and eight crew aboard. And one minute into the flight, the pilot reports a flight control problem. And then three minutes into the flight, the aircraft accelerated beyond its safe limits. And the pilot was requesting that they turn around and land again because he was like, hey, something's clearly fucking wrong. It's three minutes in and I can tell, like, we need to turn around. And air traffic control was already diverting other flights to, like, try to give them a clear landing. However, the aircraft then disappeared from radar screens. So... They couldn't, like, they could no longer contact or figure out where this flight was. And it ultimately crashed at 8.44, six minutes after takeoff. And much like the last God. flight, there were no survivors. So a lot of parts of that story are very similar to the story about Flight 610 that we just heard. Flight 302 experienced problems very quickly after takeoff. The pilots were having trouble getting a grasp of where they were. And the plane ultimately nosedived into the ground. 
But hey, bad stuff happens. That doesn't mean it's the plane's fault, right? No, at this point, I'm concerned about yeah. it being the plane's fault. Yeah, so according to a New York Times report, investigators at the crash site of the Ethiopian Airlines flight found evidence that suggests the plane's stabilizers were tilted upward. And at that angle, the stabilizers would have forced down the nose of the jet, and then the pilots would have tried to get the nose back up. So the and the stabilizers would have, yeah, and again, they would have been seesawing through the air. So, like I just said, this happened, like, last week, two weeks ago. This other one happened in October. Both of these investigations are very much still ongoing. But it seems more and more that these planes, and specifically this stabilizer feature on the plane, caused both of these horrifying crashes. Let's talk about how that works. So, the Boeing 737 MAX 8 is different than previous generations of the 737, because the engines of the MAX 8 are placed higher and further forward in relation to the wing. And because they're like that, it destabilizes the pitch of the aircraft, which is basically like how far forward it points. Right. So uh, this is bad. But the people at Boeing noticed that this was happening. And so they designed this brand new system to fix this problem called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS which I talked about briefly when we were talking about Flight 610. But basically what the system does is that if the 737 MAX's nose pitches up higher than usual, which could lead to a stall, the MCAS senses this and lowers the aircraft's nose to avoid the stall. But if the sensors are wrong, though, the plane pretty much crashes. And that is bad enough, but there are two other bad things. Number one, uh, this is a single point of failure system. So think about when I talked about the Challenger, those O-rings, and how Mm -hmm. if those O-rings got fucked up, there was nothing anyone could do. There were no backups. There wasn't a bunch of O-rings that would slip into place. Exactly. That's the same scenario here. Like, if this gets fucked up, if one of the sensors are broken, there's, like, no backup that, like, the plane notices, oh, my sensor's broken, I see now, let me fix it. I just, uh, I just feel like if we're gonna hurl ourselves into the air... Every single thing has to have, like, four backups. I know. I know. Or and most don't of do them it. do. And most of them do. But this was a brand new thing, and it didn't. And then the even worst part that I think is that the pilots were never trained or briefed about this new system. So when all of a sudden the plane is taking a nosedive, they couldn't, they couldn't even think, like, oh, the MCIS system is fucking up. Because they didn't even really know what that was. They were just like, the plane is going into a nosedive for a reason I don't understand. Right. And, like, it's really sad because if they did know about it, there was actually in the cockpit a way to turn off that system. They just didn't know that the system was what was causing the problem. That's even worse. I know. Because then there is that element of human error of before you send people up into the air, you need to know know that you've briefed them on any anything that could go wrong. Exactly. So if they had, like, been able to turn off those that system, they could have, in theory, righted the plane and landed it. They couldn't have, like, flown it all the way home like normal. Whose fault is that? Is that Boeing's fault? Is that the airline's fault? So I kind of think it's both. I have, uh, and again, like, these investigations are still very much ongoing, so there hasn't been, like, a lot of research into this. My impulse, and I am a flight inspector. um, Exactly. (laughs) That's my day job, you guys. We are overly qualified to make (laughs) these kinds of judgments. It's wild I haven't talked about flights before. Um... My impulse is that they just kind of rolled out this system and they were like, it's basically the same as all the other Boeings. And then the management was like, it's basically the same as all the other Boeings. And it wasn't. And like that just, they didn't give, they didn't give it that minute to think about it. 
But again, I don't know. Maybe we're going to hear in a week. Sort of a sense of, like, tacit complicity on multiple fronts. That's what I think probably happened. So to conclude this part of the story, they recovered the black box from Flight 302 shortly after the crash. And once it was discovered what happened and that it was so similar to what happened with Flight 610, they have pulled all Boeing 737 MAX 8s out of service. Smart. I think that's wise. And people were kind of calling for them to do that after the first one because they were like, oh, these planes are pretty new. Well, if it's a new plane and there's a crash, obviously. But people were like, oh, well, that's probably not what caused it. Like, it was probably pilot error or some freak thing. But then when the second one happened, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll we'll pull them out. Oh, it sucks that, you know, 150 people had to die for them to figure that out. That's unacceptable. I agree. Uh, So in total, about 300 planes in operation were grounded globally, and in addition to that, more than 4,000 were, like, ordered and have now not been delivered, which is, like, $600 billion worth of planes that are in jeopardy of not being completed. Good. And the value of Boeing has gone down by $25 billion, which also kind of good. You can't make those mistakes, unfortunately. Yeah. Here's just a fun, horrifying fact. Isn't this a blast? They only pulled these planes after our friend Sean took a Boeing 737 MAX 8 to Chicago last week. Oh my god! Yeah, um, our good friend uh, Sean, his family's from Chicago, he flew there like on last Monday and was in a Boeing 737 MAX 8. Jesus Christ! And on purpose didn't, Sean! didn't tell Becky until he landed. To oh, say, like, yeah! I, one of those. I would do that too! Yeah. Oh my goodness. And then like the next day they pulled them. But, like, he he rode in it the day before. Sean, if you're listening, we're glad you're alive. We're so thrilled that you're alive. So, that's the basics of this story, and it was pretty stressful. Yes. I'm pretty stressed out. But technically, air travel is still the safest way to travel. And Doesn't seem accurate. It is, though. Numbers-wise, it is. What do numbers have to do with facts, <laughs> Sam? Well, Mr. Trump, let me tell you. (laughs) 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 Truth bomb. We got him. Um, (laughs) We we got him all right. (laughs) This hot, spicy commentary. (laughs) So something that I think is important about this show, you guys, and I think about this a lot, actually, is that this show is cathartic when it comes to things that scare you and not just giving you more reasons to choke on your own fear. Yes. That's something that we talk about a great deal. We really think about that as we talk about things. It's like, is this going to be... Are we just Fun. stirring the pot, which we are wont to do? Yeah. Um, or are we... I think I think one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because we would feel better after talking to each other about scary things. Exactly. And sharing that. And then even just that camaraderie. So sometimes it's just the camaraderie, but sometimes we want to give you reasons not to flip out. Yeah. And Sam, I feel like you're about to do that. I am. I'm starting a brand new segment on this show. Ooh! And it's called Soften the Blow. <laughs> I love it. And so I um, have literally combed the internet. Usually when I come up with these, Mm -hmm. like, little list things, I just, like, find an article that looks pretty good and I steal theirs. No, I read, like, five different How to Beat Your Fear of Flight articles, and I got the three best tips. Hit me with it, Sam. And I'm going to hit you with it. So number one is educate yourself about planes and the safety of planes. That sounds counterintuitive to me. I know, I know. And I, that's my first impulse too, but that's number one on all these lists. I trust you though. Yeah. So like I was saying before, part of why planes are very scary is because how the fuck do they work? Right. And you have no control once you're in them. Yeah. Like in a car, I can basically understand like there's a motor and it's making those wheels that I can see. Yeah. 
move. Yeah. And when I do something physically with my body, it stops and starts. Absolutely. And if I the driver, if the driver keels over, in theory, I'm like, I could climb over this guy and hit the brake, pull the emergency right. brake. Exactly. Like, I could, if God forbid something happened to the driver of this Uber. Yeah. I could make some solution happen. Right. That's not true in planes. But... You know, maybe this won't work for you, but a lot of people say that just knowing the stats and really familiarizing yourself with how planes work will make you feel better. So here are some things to chant to yourself during turbulence on a flight. Quietly, so you don't freak out the people sitting next to you. In um, your head if you can. <laughs> yeah. And if you, In a whisper if you must. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, fatal accidents only occur in, once in every two million flights. Okay, that's a good one. I like that one. Your odds of dying in a plane crash are 1 in 11 million, and you are more likely to be struck by lightning, which is a 1 in 13,000 chance, which just made me kind of afraid of lightning, but still. I've never been afraid of lightning. Well, there you go. I say very confidently. <laughs> you shouldn't be afraid of planes then. Um, and yeah, like, some scientists at MIT or something did a study and they were like, you could ride a plane every day for a hundred thousand days and you still probably wouldn't die in a plane crash that makes sense i mean that makes sense yes and even if you are in, if your plane is involved in some type of accident there is a very good chance that you will survive the national transportation safety board estimates that there's a 95 chance of survival in a plane emergency based on a ton of studies of past commercial aircraft accidents. So I was wrong before. Yeah, so what the, basically what I think is a lot with, like, with the Challenger 2, systems in a spaceship or in a plane have a lot of backups built in, more than a car does. Because a car, right. it's like, hit the brake. If you can't hit the brake, pull the emergency brake. If you can't do that, run into something that seems soft. Yeah, veer, <laughs> veer off the road and you'll probably survive. Exactly. In, like, in things that get you into the sky, they have to put, like, a hundred more backups on everything. So if, God forbid, like, even if, this is the next one, even if, um, like, an engine fails, a plane can fly safely with just one engine, and it can land safely without any engines. Literally, if both your engines fail, your pilot can still safely land the plane. And I believe, I believe that. Yes. I believe that when you say it. Though I have to say, um, whenever they're doing the thing and I, you see the video where the slide comes out, yes. I'm always like, I wouldn't get there. Like, once, the, as the slide's coming out, I would rip off a piece of something <laughs> on the plane and beat myself to death with it. <laughs> I would just be like, you, and everyone's like, no, we're gonna be fine. And I'm already, like, just fully tapped out. I respect that. But, no, you're right. And I think... Like that, um, that scene in Say Anything. I don't know if I've seen Say Anything. What the fuck? Wait, <laughs> hold on. Well, that's... What? I'm horrified because that's a fantastic movie. I believe you. Everybody roast Sam on Twitter, please. <laughs> until she watches it. We'll watch it together. It's fantastic. Great. Um, but she, the love, it, John Cusack's love interest. He's so charming in that movie. Is, is he, does he hold up the boombox? That's and the it's one. Like, in your yes. the light. The heat. You never wanted the context for that? No, I was good with just that scene. It's an excellent movie. Okay. I don't know what to say, but, I mean, I do know what to say. It's an excellent movie. But, so, she's very scared of flying, but she's going to college in London, and he goes with her, and he's like, 
doing this like mantra to her like you know most crashes happen during takeoff like during takeoff or the first 30 <laughs> seconds or whatever and they're counting down and like when they get to 30 the movie ends or something like that. it's something cute cute um she's wearing a very nice 80s hat nice. um so it's kind of making me think of that it's like there well it's probably not gonna happen yeah um, and I also, I read another interview with, like, a pilot, and he was like, the thing about turbulence is that it's 100% normal, and pilots think of it as, like, an inconvenience. Like, the reason they avoid turbulence is because, like, they don't want to spill their coffee. Right. Flying through turbulence is actually fine. And he compared it to, like, you know how if you're driving down a road in the winter and it's bumpy because of the potholes, and you're like, fuck, this is annoying, but, like, you are not afraid for your life or the life of anyone yeah. in your car. He's like, that's really what turbulence is. Right. To a pilot. I didn't really know that. Yeah, So me that's either. actually helpful. Yeah, I'm always like, uh, turbulence, because it's bad, because bad is happening. But yeah. they're just like, we avoid it because it's annoying. Yeah. But it's in real life fine. It doesn't really mess them that up that much. That makes me feel better. Right? That made me feel better, too. So, in a catastrophic situation, still probably you're okay. Keep chanting that. Uh, and also, a, a fun fact that I found is that if you can, buy a ticket towards the front of the plane, it won't be as bumpy up there. The back of the plane is where it's bumpier. Yeah, rich people get to be calm. Yes. The end. <laughs> well, this feels like it really connects with our story about the college bribery scandal Stress now. eat the rich. <laughs> I love that. Uh, f- tip number two. Dis- oh, one was so involved. I love I it. I'm so glad that there's two more. Yes. Distract yourself. Right. The best thing you can do when you're freaking out on a plane is just to focus on absolutely anything else. Like our podcast. Yes. (laughs) Download a... No, for real. Download 18 episodes of our podcast that you're most interested in. I listened to The Dream all the way from Los Angeles. Exactly. Um, Here are my favorite ones from websites. And my favorite favorite was this one, which like a British pilot uh, gave. And it was clench your butt and just keep clenching it. (laughs) So just like focus, just be like clench, clench, clench. Because the more you're thinking about clenching your butt the less you're thinking about the turbulence you're going through or the takeoff or the landing. Right. And they're like, that's like the easiest one to do is just like clench your butt as hard as you can and then clench it harder. And I was like, I respect you, British pilot. Um, Another good one that someone suggested was um, get like a pen and a piece of paper and write your name with your non-dominant hand and keep going until it's as beautiful as with your dominant hand. That's a good one. Yeah, because like it has to be something that's easy to do over and over, but like takes all of your attention and then the third one uh is download a meditation app and just bump it loud as you can guys asmr yeah which uh, some people have like oh been like oh cover asmr and i'm horrified and i'm like i watch it every single night <laughs> i don't watch like the food ones all the time i don't watch like some girl eating an entire cake but i love asmr and i stand by it for anxiety and i don't love asmr but if it works for you hell yeah i love it well, somebody, yeah. somebody was like, well, I don't like mouth sounds. I'm like, it's not all mouth sounds <laughs> being discriminated against. <laughs> so, yeah, if you can download, like, Headspace and just, like, as loud as you can, oh, as I you like can make it, the yogi is like, and now you're in a field. And just, you're like, yeah, I'm in a field. I'm in a field and the grass is very green. It's about three-fourths of an inch. Like, just get in it. Sometimes that something I often do is listen to things that I've heard before. Mm-hmm. So I listen to comedy stand-up routines or, like, you know, comedy shows or something. For some reason, I just want to listen to those. Or, like, an episode of The Office of Parks and Recreation that I have seen a yeah. lot. And I, like, follow along with it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that works for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's... Sometimes it doesn't work. And, no, but, sometimes it doesn't, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's something that really helps. Like, just trying to make yourself calm by, like, not, like, tuning out everything else is mm-hmm. not going to help. Yeah. Um, I mean, it might help you, but. 
but like it's you have to tune in to something yeah. very specific. Think really get really invested in something. Yeah. Uh, and then tip number three: do drugs. Yeah. This podcast does not endorse all drugs, but we do endorse some of them. Yeah. No, we don't endorse drug abuse <laughs> of any kind. No. Uh, but uh, here are some notable ones for the plane. Have a drink. Don't get wasted wasted, because then you might freak out. But if a Prosecco or a gin and tonic is going to loosen you up, absolutely drink it. Hit it. It is worth the money on airplane booze if it is going to stop you from freaking out. Sometimes if you hide um, your wine glass in your carry-on, they don't remember to charge you for it. Whoa. Yeah, it's a hot tip from uh, from me to you. There you go. Um, here's another tip. Take a little NyQuil or an Ambien, because if you can sleep through this whole flight, hell yeah. I feel like, though, I've never taken Ambien, but I feel like I would be the kind of person to go with, like, full Kristen Wiig if I took <laughs> Ambien on a flight. That is the fear. But that is a good one. Yeah. Just knock the fuck out. Just not, if you can do that, if you don't have to be anywhere immediately after your flight. Yeah, do it. Go to bed. If you have a pal who can kind of carry you off. Yeah. As Chris often does for me. Absolutely. Um, tip number three, Papa Zanny. Talk to your doctor about the fact that you are getting so anxious on planes. Sometimes <laughs> I get nervous on airplanes. Yes. I could not get through any flight without Xanax. Yeah, for real. Like, don't feel bad about, like, taking it. Take it if it's going to make you feel better. Yeah, snap it in half. Rub one of the halves against your teeth. <laughs> Just snort it up. Chase it with a Pinot Noir. Don't do any of those things. But definitely get some Xanax if you need it. Yes. Don't mix. Don't mix. Yeah, don't mix. Don't do that. I've never done that before. I know you I really haven't. can't say that to, you should do that, but that is... No, I'm not going to say that. You shouldn't do that. That's all. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Any doctor would tell you not to have wine and Xanax together. Yes. Moving on. <laughs> and that's it. End of sentence. Um, and then the thing that I want to say is, like, if you're getting on a plane and you're like, I shouldn't be nervous, like, I'm going to be fine, I don't need to freak out, I'm okay, and then you get on a plane and you're nervous and you're freaking out and you're not on okay, don't feel bad or weird about doing any of the stuff I just mentioned. Yeah. Like, buy that glass of wine, don't feel weird that it's a brunch flight, like, just do yeah. it. And it's embarrassing sometimes. It's hard, it's hard for me to fly with people who I don't know very well mm -hmm. or, you know, I have to... For me, it's, like, I have to plan on freaking out. Yeah. Like, I have to understand, like, it's not my fault, it's not bad, I'm not bad, but I'm probably going to have a, a low-scale anxiety attack. Yeah. And that's just something that I need to make my travel partners aware of. Yeah. Um, And let them know that they don't need to, like, panic or mm -hmm. tell somebody or just, like, you know. And and also if you're traveling with somebody, let them know if you if you can figure out what would be best for you. Like if they if you want them to hold your hand, if you don't want them to, if mm -hmm. you want them to get you water, if the, if you want them to acknowledge it or not acknowledge yeah. it, or if a seat is going to be better for you, absolutely. Ask for what you need, um, and don't you know minimize your anxiety for other people's comfort. That's absolutely. a good rule for life. Yes, but especially on planes cuz everyone's snapped out anyways. Yeah. Even the least upset of people. Oh yeah. are going to be snapped out. So, so that's it, horror honeys. The next time you're on a plane, do not think about the Boeing 737 Max 8. Don't think about all that stuff we just <laughs> told you about. Think about all the ways that I just softened the blow. Try your best not to be horrified. Listen to our historical episodes. Yeah, that's a good you one. You know, not current ones. Don't listen to those. Yeah. 
Um, I'm trying to think of ones that would be triggering. Even on a plane, like, even if I was on a plane and I was listening to the one that you did about the Cascadia subduction, <laughs> I think that would still freak me out. Yeah. I need, like... The definitely don't listen to the Challenger. Definitely not that one. No. Maybe the um, Fermi Paradox? No, nope, no. No. Too close to the sky. Too close <laughs> to the sky. Fair enough. I'm thinking, um... Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Perfect. Any of our Mary episodes. Listen to all the Marys on repeat. Yeah. And I believe in you guys. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I hope you're listening to- I hope, like, this just landed and you're like, oh, yeah, like, new episode of I'm Horrified for my flight. I'm so excited. (laughs) And we just fucked you up. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Hey, horror honeys. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at I'm Horrified Pod. Your support means the world to us. And if you're not enjoying the show, why are you still listening? Maybe you do like the show. I hope if you're listening to this on a plane, you are fast forwarding to our next segment. Which is something totally different and actually is a great thing to listen to on a plane because it's such a dumpster <laughs> fire, but it can happen completely on land. Thank God. So um, let's let's get into it. So the origins of this story, we mentioned on Twitter a while back that we did a guest episode on a wonderful anime enthusiast podcast called Are Weeb There Yet? Yes. Hosted by three pals, one of whom is my college improv teammate, Mr. Patrick Dugan. So this was Pat's suggestion and I cannot thank him enough for it. So I'd just like to say on behalf of everyone, thank you for your service, Pat. Um, so Sam, you valiantly covered Firefest on this podcast several weeks back and since we released that episode. Two major content platforms have released long-form documentary exposés on the topic. I'm, I'm How interesting. Journalist. I would just, I would like to take a minute from your segment to congratulate myself. <laughs> I, You've been killing it with the trendy content lately. I talked about Firefest, and then two Firefest documentaries came out. I talked about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, and now HBO is coming out with a new Theranos documentary. They ju- didn't they just do it, or was that CBS? I don't even know, but it's the, everyone's covering it. Everyone's covering it. All of a sudden, I talked about um, my hometown cult, and all of a sudden, Nexium's all over the news. Nexium's hot right now. So, I mean, I don't want to say Pulitzer Prize Committee. Where are you? All I'm trying to say is, where is the money for our genius? Yeah. A long-awaited answer. No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's something we've long asked ourselves: Absolutely. is when are we gonna start getting paid? And Netflix, when you finally reimburse me for my intellectual property, I will turn right around. I will give you that money back if you bring back one day at a time. Yeah. That's what I'll do for you. Once we learn how to sue anyone, it's <laughs> over for you, host. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, we, we're trendsetters. We knew that. Absolutely. However, today, I'd like to revisit a fire fest of the past. A fest that was arguably far more horrifying and fire-filled than Firefest ever was. Oh, yeah. And that is Woodstock 99. Woo! Also known as Woodstock 1999. It happened in the year 1999. We get it. So Woodstock 99 is actually the second music festival that tried to emulate the original 1969 festival held in the Catskills. I will not be explaining the original 1969 Woodstock because everyone here has presumably been alive for the past Mm -hmm. 15 years. And even if you weren't, you have Google. Exactly. So... Here's, here's a fun anecdote, though. Apparently, my grandfather on my mom's side, um, so the grandmother I've talked about, mm-hmm. um, who was a badass, um, he heard about the festival, and they were living on the Lower East Side at the time in mm-hmm. Manhattan, and he was, like, told my grandmother, and he was like, hey, that, that sounds so cool. It's, like, all these cool musicians that we listen to. Like, that would be so fun, right? And my grandmother was like, ew, that sounds disgusting, <laughs> like, sitting in the grass and the dirt. So, like, 
They missed Woodstock because she didn't want to go. But, like, I stand by her decision, honestly. Yeah. Like, that's the thing is, like, this festival is a true disaster, but I don't like the idea of music festivals in general. Yeah, they're pretty dirty. So even if this had gone really well, I might still be talking about it. Like, <laughs> this is just a, a standard music festival, but I don't like it. Yeah, next week you talk about Coachella, but just in general. Yeah. I don't like dirt, and I like clean bathrooms and mm-hmm. silence. Yeah. So... A music festival's probably not for you. I don't like it. That's okay. Um, but if you like them, fine. Like, I'm not knocking them. Like, I'm sure they're great. And if, if you like music and being outdoors and camping and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure it's a blast. Um, so like I said, it's the second time they tried to do Woodstock over again. Because they actually did have a Woodstock in 1994, the mm-hmm. year of our birth. By all accounts, Woodstock 94 was fine, if not a little bit overcrowded and poorly managed. Mm-hmm. Since... There was, like, a chain-link fence yeah. <laughs> separating the crowds from the outside, um, and they didn't have enough security, and it was just kind of mismanaged, and they were sneaking lots of contraband beer in and stuff like that. But whatever, it was fine, and things were fine, and people had fun. So five years later, they say, hey, let's do it again. So John Schur, who's, like, this Broadway concert promoter guy, joins forces with Michael Lang, who was one of the original organizers of the 69 Woodstock. And they've got some big names. They got Cheryl Crow, um, Alanis, Limp Bizkit, uh, Kid Rock got in there somehow. Those first two I was very interested. And then those a lot two, of them I'm are deeply shitty, but were very popular in 1999. Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, oh, also our good pals, the Insane Clown Posse, were there. Thank God. They were, like, a big deal, too. Like, oh, people yeah. were really excited that they were there. And I'm like, more on them later. <laughs> So one aspect we should know going in is that John Schur actually lost money on Woodstock 94. People were sneaking in and out without tickets. They didn't have enough security, like I said, and stuff got damaged. He wasn't happy. So he vowed this time around to make the event profitable. Mm -hmm. Tickets for the weekend were $150, which was a lot back then, though it doesn't seem like much now. Yeah, for three days of a, like, a three-day outdoor concert now, I'm like, $150, not that bad. Yeah, I mean, $150 is a lot of money, you know, in yeah. it for anything, but it's just, like, for for what Coachella costs, it's really not that much. Yeah. Um, but for a lot of people, that was like, what the fuck? Like, this better be amazing, because mm-hmm. it's $150. They also cut major corners on production of facilities, um, a la Fire Festival, really? <laughs> any way they could. They didn't put money into building enough bathrooms, showers, water fountains, so the toilets had overflowed. It's just gross. They just were not prepared for the amount of people. Um, though, I mean, I guess they have a leg up on Firefest there because they weren't saying it was going to be luxury, <laughs> but they did say, like, there'll be water. Yes. So you kind of do need to have that. Yeah, I'd say. So they had this festival on what was basically an airplane tarmac, which was once a Superfund site. Now, I didn't know what that meant. Me neither. So I looked it up. Superfund was a government program to pump money into toxic waste sites. Great. And any area that was being cleaned up or was deemed toxic enough to be part of that program was nicknamed a Superfund site. Great. So this was that. Perfect. So I don't know if they cleaned it up or not. I'm assuming they did, but maybe maybe they didn't. Maybe they just um, buried it. You never know. <laughs> yeah. They bulldozed out all the trees for more room so they could sell more tickets. But So that meant that there was, like, no shade anywhere. Great. No tea, no shade, but also no physical shade yeah. from the sun. Yeah. Um, which worked out really well because the temperatures reached over a hundred degrees several times over the weekend. Uh. Um, there were also two stages. So there was like an east stage and a west stage and they were almost two miles apart. Wow. So if you wanted to get from one to the other, you would have to walk 
almost two miles on bare tarmac with the sun reflecting down, beating on you, and, like, reflecting off of the black top. Yikes. Just, like, to get from Elvis Costello over to Jewel. Oh, my God. You would you would have to do that. Uh. This is reminding me of, um, what's it called? The Donner Party, when they oh, crossed wow. the salt desert. It's exactly like that, except instead of yeah. a new life, you were trying to get to Jewel. But you're wearing a camo crop top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and you're so high. And you're so high. Um, so even more aspects to the money grubbing. The food and water were outrageously priced. I mentioned that water fountains were few and far between, and water bottles were four bucks each. Damn. Personal pizzas were $12. Damn. And burritos were $10. So again, this is 1999, so that was even more back then. And it doesn't surprise me when I go to, like, a hockey game or a mm-hmm. concert and I have to pay $15 for a beer. Yeah. You kind of know going in, like, obviously they're going to charge you an insane amount. Like, Disney World water bottles are probably $8. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's shitty, but you know they're going to do it. So you just kind of have to plan for it. But, like, I don't have to nourish myself for three days. Exactly. When I go to the TD Garden to see a concert. Yeah. <laughs> um... So, because of this, people started breaking into trailers and looting for food and water. They also broke open ATMs to get cash out. Oh, Jesus. And you know what? I, I get that. Yeah. Like, if I haven't had a snack in four hours, I'm ready to commit a crime. <laughs> Absolutely. Any crime. Yeah. <laughs> Violent crime. Absolutely. Uh, whatever. Tax evasion. So, they also broke apart the water fountains that did exist so water would shoot out. Um, so they could get it faster, which caused a huge mud pit. Classic. Which they had at the 69 Woodstock, but I, it was, like, more romantic in the 60s, I guess. Yeah. I, I disagree. It probably came from, like, rain and not, like, a lack of fresh water for yeah. the people. The tears for the Vietnam War or something. Oh, God. Okay, so what else is going wrong here? The police really didn't have a handle on the situation at all. There were local police and about 500, like, New York Stadies who were paid to be there. And then there was supposed to be a team of volunteer paid security to support them. So not police, but security, who they had paid to be there. But they paid them really poorly and they didn't give them any meal breaks or water or... Perfect. Shelter or anything like that. So they're going to do a great job. So most of them left. Yeah. (laughs) Most of them just disappeared into the crowd. I think we've all been there at our place of work, right? It's like, I haven't had lunch yet today. Like, I'm leaving. And if you have an air-conditioned break room for me, call me and we'll see if we can figure it out. (laughs) But they just, a lot of them just left. So a bad vibe is going around. People are thirsty and hot and unbathed, chewing on a $12 pizza But they just want to see their favorite band. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, the bands didn't really help matters. Oh, no. ICP, as we talked about before, love that episode. (laughs) God, listen to that on a plane. Um, (laughs) They started throwing $100 bills into the crowd, which incited violent riots as they laughed from atop the stage. Oh, God. Now, that's pretty awful, but I have to applaud them for staying vigorously on brand there. (laughs) Um. Kid Rock encouraged people to throw their plastic water bottles on the stage as a protest of the high prices. However, I don't really see how that does that. Yeah. I would have kept my water bottle and then filled it with the water. From the mud pit. From the mud pit. (laughs) You gotta do what you gotta do. Tried to filter it. Um, Limp Bizkit's performance was interestingly layered. I will explain how. So during their set, Fred Durst um, was quoted as saying, people are getting hurt. Don't let anybody get hurt, but I don't think you should mellow out. That's what Alanis Morissette had you motherfuckers do. (laughs) If someone falls, pick them up. We already let all the negative energy out. It's time to reach down and bring that positive energy to this motherfucker. It's time to let yourself go, 
right now because <laughs> there's no that motherfucking rules out there. So that's like a lot of mixed messages. It's like, I want don't be mellow. Tattooed on my body. But you gotta chill a little bit. But not too much. But not too much. But then during their song Break Stuff, Durst encouraged the crowd to break stuff. That makes sense. And they did so. That was nice of them. (laughs) (laughs) They agreed. To listen to him. So they started, like, pulling wooden panels off the stage and, like, fighting each other. So thanks, Fred Durst, I guess. I would not have had fun at this concert. I I rarely have fun at any concerts where I can't sit down. Honestly. (laughs) Like, I go to, like, these the most hipster concerts. Like, I'm at a Father John Misty concert, and the people in front of me stand up. So, like, everyone has to stand up. And I'm like, I'm exhausted. (laughs) Um... So during the Red Hot Chili Pepper set, things got even crazier. Yeah. There was an anti-gun nonprofit who handed out candles and lighters earlier in the day to be used as, like, a vigil during one of the Chili Pepper songs. I think it's Under the Bridge or yeah. Under... I don't remember that song. Um, That's a pretty popular one. It's like, Under the Bridge. I don't... I'm not... Oh, is that it? That's their song? Under the Bridge, yeah. I didn't know what that was called. Yeah. Under the Bridge. So, uh, during, they were supposed to be used during a visual of that very popular song, um, that I totally knew was popular. Absolutely. So people started lighting those candles and making tiny bonfires with them. Great. So I don't think that was the intended use. No, I bet not. I won't speak for that nonprofit. (laughs) But so they started, like, using pieces of the fence and scattered plastic water bottles as kindling. Great. And at one point they even set an audio tower on fire. (laughs) So, yeah. And I think they set a car on fire. Yeah, I think a truck came through the crowd at some point. Oh, my God. I'm sure Flea was naked the All whole time. All good stuff. He was bass. naked. Yeah, I'm confident There's he was. pictures of that. I didn't even include that because I was just like, where's that going to go? <laughs> He's naked a lot at their concerts. He loves being naked. Yeah. I don't know why, but if I mean, fine. If I was fine. a super successful member of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I'd maybe be naked at my concerts. <laughs> I can't say what I would or wouldn't do if that was my life. Yeah. Okay, um, let's change our tone here for a second. There are a few truly awful and deplorable things that happened during Woodstock 99. Uh, skip ahead, like, five minutes. Just content warning for sexual violence, if you need to do that. So, there was a pervasive attitude of anger and violence towards women present at Woodstock 99. I mean, ICP was there. I see, yeah. It's like (laughs) ICP was there, fucking Kid Rock was there. Like, shitty, annoying men were all around. Yeah. So, I'm not surprised. Um, But things got extraordinarily out of hand. Nearly every female singer, as well as a lot of concert goers, were pelted with heckles yelling, show us your tits. Like, that's all they said the whole time. It was very, like, aggressive, angry, misogynistic chanting. Imagine listening to Who Will Save Your Soul and wanting to see her tits in that moment. And not just think about the stories of the people that you see every day on the bus. Exactly. (laughs) Very confusing. Um... And some of the Woodstock promoters put pictures of naked or topless women on, like, Woodstock99.com or whatever it was. So they put it on the internet without their consent. More disturbingly, there were multiple instances of sexual violence during the festival, including gang rapes that happened in the mosh pit. Oh my god. That people saw. Like, it was truly horrific. Um, And there wasn't nearly enough security to adequately handle these situations... For obvious reasons. And although 44 arrests were made, only one man was convicted of sexual violence. So overall, there just seemed to be this really angry, shitty attitude that was there from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And it was very far away from that peace and love vibe that everyone describes from the original Woodstock. And that's obvious. Like, it was a capitalistic, Mm -hmm. you know, 
branded event rather than a bunch of people like going to the woods to watch Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Um, MTV host Kurt Lauder was there covering the event and was quoted as saying, it was dangerous to be around. The whole scene was scary. There were just waves of hatred bouncing around the place. It was clear we had to get out of there. It was like a concentration camp. All right, that seems a little too far. That's a little extreme, Kurt, but still really bad. <laughs> um, I mean, for like a, a 25-year-old white host on MTV, maybe it is like a concentration camp because that's <laughs> that's his life and his truth. Yikes. Uh, to get in, you get frisked to make sure you're not bringing in any water or food that would prevent you from buying from their outrageously priced booths. You wallow around in garbage and human waste. There was a palpable mood of anger. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. Sounds like a good time. Promoter and organizer John Schur was quoted after the fact as having said, I'm bummed big time. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> I bet more, you are, John. There's more to that quote, and I'm choosing not to read it. Oh, my God. History looks back on it as a massive fuck-up fueled by capitalism and misogyny and expensive water bottles. I would categorize it as a larger, though less hysterical, failure than Fire Festival. Yes. And that, my friends, is the story of what the San Francisco Chronicle labeled The Day the Music Died, Woodstock 99. Is that what that song's about? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's probably made before 1999, but I could be wrong. So oh, wow. that's that. Uh, thanks, Pat Dugan. <laughs> thanks, and again, no thanks. Thanks and no thanks. Wow. What a story. It's insane. What a story. I would like, I'm so glad Lil- Lilith Fair existed. Yeah, it was really white, though. Yeah. It was overwhelmingly white. But I'm glad that it happened. But at least they weren't, like, screaming, show us your tits. It was extremely queer, though, which is great. Like, half the ladies up there were gay. I love so that. So that's great. Um, Just like, We imagine... need another one that's more intersectional, yes, I think. absolutely. Be imagine being Alanis and, like, wanting to go up there and sing, like, I see right through you. And then they're like, show us your tits. And you're like, are you even listening? Gross. Imagine her having to, like, go past, like, the talent dressing rooms, if they even had those, and, like, ICPs in there, and you're like, I'm fucking Alanis Morissette. Yeah. I'm the queen of Canada. Flea is naked in front of you, and you're, you're just, just, like, have to accept it. This is just my weekend. Ugh. No fun <sighs> at all. No fun at all. No fun at all. This episode was bad. <laughs> this wasn't good. Not our best work. <laughs> um, that's, not, that's not what I meant. I thought we, but we both oh, did Oh, that's amazing. what I meant. I think that we're both untalented. <laughs> Don't um, say that about my friend. I thought you were going to say, don't say that about me. No. <laughs> say that about you. Don't say it about me. I'd rather you didn't, but. But I won't tolerate you talking about my friend that way. Exactly. No, we're both good at what we do. But these were sad. <laughs> but we harmed you today. Yeah, sorry about that. So, sorry. Um, Go get a Xanax prescription and uh, stay horrified. Stay horrified. Thank you.